Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, we left Professor Robinson and Judy at work refining atomic ore, unaware that a short distance away from them, a treacherous, man-devouring pit lay waiting for its prey. How's the reading on the radioactive counter? It's still running from 8.4 to 9.7. That's the richest vein we've found yet, and it's still holding. Oh, I'll go tell the others. Oh, uh, tell your mother to pack a lunch for us. We're going to be here all day. All right. What a delightful machine. Beating its little heart out, producing deuteronium fuel for us. Well, Dr. Smith, this machine doesn't produce fuel. It merely refines and concentrates radioactive ores. A mere detail. What difference does it make as long as it produces enough fuel for us to blast off from this wretched planet? We're going to need four more canisters of that fuel. Now, if we don't get it from that vein, I don't know where we're going to find it. Rest assured, we'll have it. I can smell success in the air. Before you know it, we'll be off into the heavens, an infinitely better people for our ordeal. Conditioned to survive in any kind of environment, toughened by encounters with alien life forms, immune to... Welcome back, folks, for episode 14 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 14th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled Attack of the Monster Plants. And this one I know I've watched multiple times, and I'll admit I do remember liking it. Do you have any memories of this one? No, this is another one of those cool Lost episodes, uh, Lost in My Memory, that is. I probably saw it as a kid, but I just don't remember any part of it. Oh, good. Well, we'll have fun as usual. A few production notes before we begin with the story. The writing team of 37-year-old William Reed Woodfield and 40-year-old Alan Balter had been churning out scripts for Irwin Allen on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea during the first and second seasons. In 1964, Balter, who was at the time an associate producer on Voyage, asked his writer friend Woodfield to do a draft script for the series 
even though after watching an episode of it, Woodfield said he found it unwatchable. But after finding out they'd pay him $3,500 to write one, I guess he changed his mind. Yeah, amazing how a cash incentive can erase a writer's pride now, isn't it? (laughs) Maybe the episode made him see green, Uh. literally. Well, $3,500 is a lot of smackers uh, back in 1964, I can tell you that. So Yeah, and just because, you know, one series is unwatchable doesn't mean you can't write a better episode for that series. I mean, just because the other writers can't write, you know, show them what you can do. Well, in point of fact, he wrote what many fans consider to be one of the best and most serious episodes of that show titled Doomsday. And after that, Irwin, who had a nose for talent, immediately hired Woodfield as a staff writer for Voyage. Eventually, Alan Balter, who also had several screen credits as a writer and wanted to get back to writing versus producing, teamed up with his buddy Woodfield and presented Irwin with an ultimatum. Allow us to write as a team for the show or we'll both walk. Irwin eventually agreed and the rest is history. Uh, That depends. Uh, Do I have to pay you twice as much or half as much as a team? Well, yeah, it's a kind of a bargain if you think of it that way. Two for the price of one, right? Uh Anyway, the pair mainly wrote for Voyage, but they were given this Lost in Space assignment in June of 1965, which they originally titled The Cyclamen. But this was another script that had the title changed by Irwin's secretary because it sounded too vanilla for the master of disaster. Yeah, good choice. I like this title a lot better. Me too. The director for this episode was the 49-year-old Justice Addis. This was the first of two episodes of Lost in Space directed by Addis. In addition, he would eventually direct 16 episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea for Alan. He had started his Hollywood career in the 50s as a dialogue coach on several movies before he began his TV directing career, and his directing credits included jobs for Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and multiple westerns. He received high praise from the actors that he worked with on Irwin's shows, especially from Marta Kristen on this Judy-centric episode. Kristen especially enjoyed this story that allowed her to flex her acting legs playing an evil vegetable twin. Well, um, since it's a family show, I'll resist saying anything about her acting legs. (laughs) Yes. The episode was filmed from the 26th of November through the 3rd of December, 1965. That was six days. It aired on Wednesday night, December 15th, 1965, and it garnered a summer repeat, which I think it deserved, on May 4th, 1966. All the regular characters are featured, and there are no guest stars. Uh, But suffice it to say, I'm not only a big fan of her acting, but but also of her legs. (laughs) Yes. Sorry about that. Same here, same here. So, all right, let's start off with the plot here. This one in Act 1 begins with a nice tight teaser, about three minutes. As usual, the narrator is catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. We're at the drill site where Professor Robinson is watching the rig with Judy standing at his side while Dr. Smith is seated next to what might seem to be a familiar-looking piece of equipment. We saw it last time as a water conversion unit in the Oasis, but apparently it doubles as a deuteronium refinery. And rest assured, we'll see it many more times as well. (laughs) There's... (laughs) 
you can bet on it. John asks Judy to take a Geiger counter reading, and whatever numbers she announces must be good, because John tells her to run, grab them a packed lunch. They're going to be there all day. Now, I notice something right away. They must be experiencing one of the planet's hot spells, or at least it's hot around that drill site, because John's stripped down to his t-shirt, but when we cut over to Dr. Smith, he's wearing his cold-weather parka. One wonders why. (laughs) You have to remember, this is 1965, and having handsome Guy Williams stripped down to his undershirt must have been quite titillating for the audience, you know, at least for women uh, viewers. But they were probably swooning with excitement. Yet by today's standards, it's humorous to see guys strutting around and showing off his dad's bod physique. Yeah. But, but again, it was a different time. The only guy who exercised to build up his muscles in the 1960s television world was Jack LaLanne, the star of that daily exercise show. So by most standards, Guy was quite buff. Yeah. Well, Dr. Smith is praising the work of the refinery gizmo, whatever you call it, and John cautions him not to be too quick to celebrate. They're going to need four more canisters of fuel if they're going to have enough to blast off the planet. But of course, Smith is certain of success. And then just at that moment, we see a strange vine slithering up to an unsuspecting John's ankle. Smith sees it first, but not before it grabs John and starts to pull him away, not towards another skunk cabbage this time, but to a deadly alien pit of quicksand and certain death. And I had to think when I saw this, I couldn't help but be reminded of that scene from uh, Return of the Jedi. I think they called it the Sarlacc Pit when they were all getting pulled in by tentacles down to this pit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it sort of reminded me of that on a much smaller scale, of course. And I know I've read in various interviews that both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were Irwin Allen fans growing up. So perhaps that was an homage to this scene from Lost in Space. Well, you know, now that you mention it, Jar Jar Binks has a a lot of similarities with the sillier side of Dr. Smith, at least as far as his ability to foul things up. Well, anyway, in this case, John is being dragged to his death in the quicksand, and Smith is at least stood up at this point, but he's frozen in terror. And just then, Don shows up, and he tries to help the professor, but is quickly trapped in the pit as well. I was like, Don? (laughs) Yeah, really. Uh, When I asked for your help, I didn't ask for help sinking down in the sand, please. But Smith's doing nothing this whole time. And finally, John says in exasperation, well, well, don't just stand there, do something. So Smith finally gets enough courage to creep towards John, and he, he reaches out with one hand, but he starts panicking again. You're pulling me in. Let go. Let go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he is. And, and John's grabbing him by the hand, but Smith manages to give him the literal slip by slipping out of his parka. So I guess now we know why he's wearing it. It's part of his quick escape act, I guess. Well, you know, it's interesting little uh, aside from uh, lifeguards, this is a very common problem with people who are drowning. You try to help them and they'll they'll try to drown you. They'll try mm. to climb over you. And the only uh, tactic that lifeguards have, and it's very effective, I might add, is that you're supposed to dive under. You're supposed to go down to the bottom so that the person lets go of you. But that's not an option for, in this instance, because mm. they're in a sand pit, you know. So if Smith goes in, well, not that he would ever try to save anyone else's life. Who am I fooling? Mm. No, not an option here. But the situation is pretty dire because it leaves a sinking John and Don with nothing but Smith's jacket. And uh, it's at least floating on top of there. And Don gets another good line here. He goes, why that dirty blank? (laughs) And we know what he wants to call him. But instead, they say, we need help. And Smith is responding by just screaming out for help. But no one's arriving and time's running out. So as we go to opening credits, he runs away, presumably to get some help. Maybe, maybe not. Tune back in to find out. 
When we return from the opening titles, in contrast to the crisis at the drill site, we see a scene of domestic bliss outside the Jupiter 2 with Marine, Judy, the kids, and sweet little Debbie doing normal things as Dr. Smith is running into the scene, but then he slows to a normal walk after taking a look around to see if he's being followed. Hmm. He approaches the rest of the family with a serene smile on his face, in spite of the fact that Don and John are moments away from being swallowed alive. And then he he pauses to speak with Will, who's playing with a homemade lasso. I was kind of wondering, why is Smith doing this? Why is he, like, you know, (laughs) slow walking this plea for help? But, you know, maybe Don's threats to him as they were parting might have been having an effect. And maybe subconsciously it's sort of like, gee, I'm not so sure I want to get them out of the, the sand pit because Don's going to beat me up or something. I know. It doesn't make any sense. So I Unless I, it's a subconscious thing like, well, he was threatening me, so I'm not really sure I want to help him. I'm, I'm trying to get the benefit of the doubt here, you know, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hilarious when you watch it because you're sitting there going, dude, get with it. Tell them. But he doesn't. He can't help himself. Immediately, he's starting to scheme, I suppose, or, or at least he's passive aggressive in this case. So. Yes, that would be it. I wanted to interject something here. This is one of the episodes on the Blu-ray that has the special cast commentary track available. So prepping for this episode, I watched it once. And on that, Bill Mooney mentioned that during this scene, he had recently been in an episode of the TV show, The Virginian. And for that show, he had had to learn how to throw a lasso, which I thought was neat. It's a neat little bit of trivia. And so he was using it here on Lost in Space. Ironically, though, The Virginian on NBC was a direct ratings competitor of Lost in Space. Oh, wow. So Irwin lassoed Billy away from the Virginian and used him in a competing program. I'm sure sure the Virginian really appreciated that. Not... Yeah, well, he was good at that sort of thing. So, and I also want to mention real quickly that the facilitator for those Blu-ray commentary tracks is a is a gentleman named Mike Clark. He's well known in the Lost in Space community, and I recently recorded an interview with him. He's a very nice guy with a lot of great insights and stories. So, look out for that special interview down the road. Oh, that would be neat. But who is the uh, cast that's included in that Blu-ray at that point? I mean, obviously, Guy Williams is not there for reasons that are obvious. I guess Doctor Smith wasn't there. He had already passed on. Yes, because these were all done in 2015. So it's Bill Moomy, Angela Cartwright, Marta Kristen, and Mark Goddard. It's the four. Oh, cool. Yeah, June Lockhart is still alive, but uh, I don't think she's doing appearances. She's, I think she's at least 90 by now. So, uh-huh. And I guess uh, the, the robot wasn't able to attend either. Or... Yeah, Bob May and Dick Twofield have both passed away as well. So. Oh, okay. That's a shame. I didn't realize that yeah. as early as 2015, you say that's yes. when this occurred? Yes. But anyways, they had some nice, interesting comments. It's definitely worth taking the time to do that. Next, Dr. Smith asks Will to take the rope down to the drill site. Now, he never mentions why. He just tells him, your your father needs the rope. And Will doesn't seem interested at first, but Maureen chimes in and says, Dr. Smith asked you to do something, Will. And Will said, he's always asking me to do something. And Smith retorts... 
No insolence. (laughs) So Will departs with the rope. Then Smith adds to Maureen and Judy, who are unloading that space-age laundry machine. When I was a boy, children didn't dilly-daddy when their elders asked them to do something. (laughs) Sure. Well, then, after he gets that little shot in, he calmly walks into the ship without a word about all the peril that the men are in back at the drill site. And then Judy says something to Maureen. She says, Will's been less than helpful for her lately as well. Yeah, thanks, Judy, for ratting on your kid brother. (laughs) Don't expect him to cover for you the next time you want to sneak off and take one of those quickies or walks with Don. (laughs) Indeed. Next, we cut back to the sand pit. Now John and Don are literally up to their necks in trouble. In this case, quicksand. John says, this is good advice when you're in quicksand. Try not to struggle. Try to float. Uh, That's so typical. Even when dying, John can't resist his know-it-all bit, you know, shouting at Don, telling him what to do. Poor Don can't even suffocate in dirt without being told what to do properly by John. You know, sheesh. I give Mark Goddard credit because he actually does sort of stop moving at that point and he just sort of acts like he's floating there for a second. But (laughs) Whatever you tell me to do, Dad. (laughs) Quickly, we cut to Will lollygagging along the path to the drill site with not a care in the world. Oh, this is great. For once, you don't know who to be more frustrated with. You know, Will for taking a sweet time or Smith for not telling him that it's a life or death situation. You know, so it's very, very gripping. It is. It is. Yes. And when he finally reaches the area, he's shocked to see his dad and Don stuck in that pit. And then he races into action. He ties off one end of the rope to a tree and then tosses the other end to the men. And they manage with great effort to pull themselves out of the pit. And this was some more good acting. They really looked like they were struggling to get themselves out of the pit. And I thought that whole sequence was very well shot and directed. It had some interesting overhead tracking shots intermixed with some close-ups on Bill Mooney's face. And the realization that his dad and Don are in danger just is obvious when you see that. Yeah, there is real tension, although you can tell the sand is not wet, you know, like real quicksand. This is more like the Rice Krispies or or Quaker's Oats or whatever it is they use. So maybe that's why they keep it all dry so you don't get to hear all that loud snap, crackle, pop stuff, you know. Now, you you had to bring that up, Kurt, because this has been a a real bone of contention at my house. My wife, when she heard us call it Rice Krispies or Cheerios in the Mutant episode, it's the same quicksand, basically, they used in that episode. She said, that's not cereal. It's obvious it's not (laughs) cereal. Well, well, what is it then? I don't know. And she kept saying, well, I think it's like a a vermiculite or something like that. I said, how can you tell? (laughs) I don't know what it is, but uh, it's not quicksand. It's not wet. This is a trick of wives. They'll tell you what it isn't, but they won't tell you what it is. They'll just tell you whatever you're doing is wrong. Exactly. You're wrong. So anyway. Oh, boy. I'm going to have to cut this out. Um, When the men are finally free of the sand pit and catch their breath, Will lets the cat out of the bag by saying, I'd have been here even quicker if Dr. Smith had told me you were in trouble. And, ugh. There's like an instant look of realization that comes over John's face. But Don, of course, goes from zero to boiling hot mode in a second. Don has a good line here. He goes, now he's in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Now he's in trouble. Yeah, that was right after he said, if I known you were in trouble, well, now he's in trouble. Exactly. But I got a question for you here, too. I thought it was odd or at least interesting that from this point on in the episode, we never hear any mention of these deadly vines. In this case, it's a monster plant that grabbed John and tried to pull him into that sand pit. 
any more in this episode, even though we're back at that same spot multiple times during the episode. Didn't you find that a little odd? Well, yeah. I mean, especially since this whole episode is called The Attack of the Monster Plant. So mm-hmm. you, you watch this attack and you think, okay, all right, this is The Attack of the Monster Plant. So this is obviously the monster plants. But it's not. No. These are not the monster plants. These are like the silly cousins or something. I mean, they're presented as if they're not as deadly as the real monster plants. But in in reality, when it's all said and done, I think these guys are more deadly. You know, I mean, they can be anywhere and they can grab you and they're going to suffocate you in the sand. So how can you let Don and and Penny and even Debbie run around the planet when you know that even the plants can pull them down and suffocate them? It's pretty creepy when you stop and think about it. It is pretty creepy, and it's. I think it's a, just another example of sometimes these openers, the cliffhangers and the teasers and everything are sort of one-offs, and they, they may or may not be totally related to the rest of the episode. But in this case, as you said, that vine is, it fills the, the niche of a monster plant, but it's never mentioned again for whatever yeah. reason. So It's what you call a uh, lost leader, you know. A lost leader. <laughs> Good one, yeah. So Well, anyway, back at the ship, no time is being wasted dealing with Dr. Smith. We see Don emerge from the hatch of the Jupiter carrying a duffel bag and a shaving kit, with Smith following on his heels. He was also loaded down with his worldly possessions and a worried look on his face. You know, maybe Smith should start keeping a packed night bag ready, you know. <laughs> These sudden exiles from the ship are getting to be rather common lately. Is this a way to show gratitude to someone who saved your life? Careful! My shaving lotions are in this bag. I ask you, my dear lady, am I being treated fairly? No, you're not. Mom, Dr. Smith didn't do anything really. That's just why we're throwing him out. He never does anything. Every time there's trouble, he runs. Who needs him? So You can always count on Don. This whole little morality play is being acted out in front of Will, Penny, and poor little Debbie, and she doesn't like all that shouting one little bit. Haven't they ever heard it's not nice to argue in front of the children? No, but uh, I guess maybe that's one of the reasons they had that big headpiece on Debbie to kind of cover her ears or something. (laughs) Uh, Well, Smith cuts to the chase. He drops the ultimate guilt trip on the ladies. He says, That's it. Now that you've found a way to get off this planet, I'm to be abandoned here. Only you, my dear Judy, cared enough to protest this barbaric treatment. For that, I shall always be grateful. Don't worry about him. He can take care of himself. Now get out of here. You'll regret this, Major. I promise you. Remember, I warned you. If you don't take me with you, no one will go. Mm. You know, he's always good with the threats when he's going out the door. (laughs) Right. Getting a safe distance between them. But at that moment, he glances down at the table, and we're shown two cans of Chekhov's deuteronium. So, hmm, what does this mean? But I do have to ask you a question about this, too. I thought about this. Does it seem odd to you that they have this radioactive rocket fuel stored in these little, what looks like, plastic drinking containers? I I can't imagine that... (laughs) I can't imagine that's doing much to prevent radiation poisoning again. Yeah, I wonder if they know once they pour that out of those thermoses, they can't use the thermoses to for drinking water anymore. Yeah. Well, in an instant, Smith sees his opportunity to pull another disappearing act with his slippery parka, and it's a nice bit of misdirection here, and he adds, Now I must say goodbye to the children, with your permission. Mm. And he makes a big show of walking over to Will, Penny, and Debbie to say his goodbyes. But as he does that, while everybody's distracted looking at the kids, he surreptitiously drops his parka on top of those canisters. It was well played by Harris and well directed by Addis. 
I like how Smith asked permission to say goodbye. He, he knows that Major West is a sucker every time you openly submit to Don's authority. And of course, Don falls for it. Mm-hmm. He's such a tool. I mean, it's like, yeah. come on. Yes, yes. He walks over to the kids who are sitting on a rock, and he tells the kids in a maudlin tone of voice, I'm going to miss you, youngsters. I've come to think of you as almost my very own. Not you. But no one says a word in response except for the bloop who bloops, which earns her a little love tap on the shoulder from Smith who adds, No, not you. (laughs) He seemed genuinely (laughs) displeased with little Debbie. Poor thing. Well, he walks back up to the table and he picks up his coat with those canisters underneath. It was smoothly done as a gypsy pickpocket. He departs them saying, Goodbye. Oh, you forgot this. Don's enjoying staying steamed at Smith, but it's not winning him any favors with the future Mrs. West. She's very upset at the treatment Don is giving to Dr. Smith. I think you're cruel, all of you. Judy. What's gotten into her? She just doesn't like to see anybody hurt, that's all. And she was saying that staring right at Don, and then she runs inside the ship. Yeah, I mean, you know, she's basically shooting daggers at him with those big blue eyes. Uh, just think about it. I mean, he's acting like an abusive husband would act. So uh, I don't think this is going to earn him any brownie points with her. Well, there's one person who's happy with all this, because if you notice in the background, Smith is walking out of the campsite and he's hearing Judy's distress over his mistreatment. And you can just see if you pay attention, a little smile creep across his face as he departs. So his pity party performance worked on at least one member of the castaways. And since this episode is all about Judy, that has to count for something. Well, I missed that that smirk. I'm going to have to go back just to rewatch it. I love those subtle Smith expressions. You know, I'm still basking in the afterglow of the previous episode, The Wrath, with all those little hilarious expressions he made while listening to his book and recording. You know, <laughs> Beautiful use of the language, Zachary, as usual. Yeah. Don does chase after Judy, but then Mom finally looks down and notices those two precious cans of fuel have disappeared. Oops. And she seems confused, and she calls John. And he appears from inside along with Don, and it takes John just a second to realize that those cans didn't walk off by themselves. And Don gets a smile on his face, and he runs after Smith, and he even says he's going to enjoy this. Maybe he'll get another chance to wring Smith's neck. Yeah, I think uh, Smith better activate his body cam right now because the uh, popo is coming to dispense some frontier justice. (laughs) (laughs) So then we we cut to Smith, and he's struggling through the wilderness, weighted down by all his worldly possessions. He even has his old Air Force uniform in his arms. And then, luckily, he happens upon the robot, who for some reason is just standing out there alone in the wilderness by some rocks. Suddenly, Smith's whole demeanor changes. He starts berating the poor old robot. I've been looking all over for you. <laughs> yes. Smith tells him he's he's not the most scintillating companion in the world, but since he hasn't much choice, I guess he'll have to do. And it's an upgrade in the situation for Smith because he's decided to let the robot share his banishment. Oh, how nice. Yes. Well, that confuses the robot. So Smith brings him up to speed and he says, we're going camping like Boy Scouts. The robot just recites the scout's oath. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, and obedient. And Smith retorts. (laughs) I knew, I knew. For the time being, obedient will suffice. Uh, And Smith's back on top again because he's got his servant companion to lord over and he proceeds to unload all that luggage from his own arms onto 
onto the robots, and off they go. Yeah, well, Smith's basically a happy camper now, because as long as he's got someone to either manipulate, insult, or command orders like a slave, he's he's in his element. (laughs) He sure is. And he is. He's bullying the robot. Come along. Don't dawdle. Come along. Come along. And then eventually, though, Don catches up to them, and he wastes no time demanding that Smith turn those canisters over. But of course, Smith pleads ignorance. Oh, is some of that precious Detronium missing? How unfortunate. But let me assure you, Major, I have it the foggiest notion where they might be. Mmm, not the foggiest notion, right. Well, this starts up a little comedy when uh, Don starts to chase Smith around the robot. This made me really feel sorry or admire Bob May because he's loaded down with all that gear and he's holding his arms straight out in that robot costume. And I, I hope it didn't take too many takes to shoot that because that had to be tiring. Also, you can tell he's wearing the walking version of the robot suit legs. They called those the Bermuda shorts. Those were the ones that didn't have the tread box feet. And the reason you can always tell that is because they've got the lower portion of his legs are kind of masked by some rocks in the foreground. And so again, the framing and the camera work is is very well done here. But after a couple rings around the robot with Don threatening to get physical with Smith, he gives up those cans when they accidentally fall out of his coat onto the ground. Oops, Smith's been caught again. (laughs) You haven't the foggiest notion, eh? You were going to leave me behind. You are going to leave me, aren't you? Well, that decision is up to Professor Robinson. But if he asks for my opinion, I'm voting to leave you here. (laughs) Smith has this terrible look of dread on his face at that, so... Next, we cut to a nicely framed scene at the drill site again. No sign of that vine, but uh, we're looking at it from a distance with some rocks in the foreground, and John and Don are refining that last batch of deuteronium ore. And Will is with Judy. Will's loaded down with several cans of that fuel. They mention that they have six cans all total, but Don says that the vein is drying up, and John also says he'd like to get just one more canister in case of emergency. As John walks out of the frame, we see Smith's head pop up from those rocks in the foreground, and we're viewing this scene over his shoulder. And I just want to mention again here, this was kind of interesting, because in the cast commentary, they said that you're looking at the back of Smith's shirt, and you can see underneath his shirt the shoulder pads that Jonathan Harris wore and the back brace, because he actually did have a bad back in real life. So that was kind of a an interesting little thing. I don't think I would have noticed that if they hadn't pointed it out. Ooh, the back pain. The mm. back pain. Did he wear that in all the episodes? I think so. I think he always had that under there, but uh, I didn't. I've never really actually noticed it until they pointed it out. But uh, you know, that, that's pretty amazing to think that he was such a you know comedian, and yet he was experiencing back pain. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there was another 1960s TV actor who suffered a lot of back pain while yucking it up every week, and that was Dick York from Bewitched. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, that's that's why he had to quit eventually because it it, it got to be too much, and they replaced him with the insepid. Dick Sargent, who couldn't laugh his way out of a paper bag. You you would have thought with a show about magic, they could have, you know, used it to kind of segue that change somehow. You know, maybe have Aunt Clara goof up a spell on Dick to make him look handsome or something. But no, they just they just swapped out the two actors with no explanation whatsoever. and Basically dared the audience to even notice. It was weird. Nothing to see here, folks. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway, the point is, Smith is spying on them here, and he's trying to get an idea of where he stands with regard to getting off the planet and back to Earth. But Don notices Smith snooping on him 
although he doesn't let on that he's seen Smith, and he's decided to have a little more fun at the good doctor's expense, making him squirm just a little. Given all the mischief that Smith's done, it's hard to blame him for that. Will asks a convenient question that allows Don a chance to turn the knife on Smith. He asks, what Dad meant by getting one more canister in case of emergency? Don't they have enough fuel to blast off? Don tells Will not to worry and sends him running back with that last canister. He does caution him not to let anything happen to it. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. <laughs> yeah. yeah, never tell Will not to do something that is just going <laughs> to encourage him to do it. Yeah, Right. With Will out of earshot, Don turns to Judy and starts his show for Dr. Smith. Just to make sure that Smith hears him, he raises his voice as he says, Judy, I didn't want to worry Will, but our fuel-to-weight ratio is very critical, and that means Smith will most likely be left behind. And Judy is confused, but Don lets her in on the secret that Dr. Smith is eavesdropping on them. But she's not amused. Don's having too much fun to quit teasing Smith now. He even says he deserves it. Smith retreats saying, We shall see. You know, but I bet I'm not the only audience member who is thinking this is a dangerous game, Don. I mean, you're tapping on the glass to a cobra, taunting it to strike. You know, I mean, I know it's kind of fun and everything, but glass can break and Smith is one slippery creature who doesn't forget his enemy, so... He really is. Yes, you have to be careful when you poke the snake, so... Next, we see little Will walking back on the path to the Jupiter when he's intercepted by dear Dr. Smith, who pops out from behind a rock to say goodbye before they leave him behind. But Will's confused. He says his dad said they're taking him with him, but Smith says he's already heard that barbarian Major West say that they're leaving him on the planet. There's simply not enough fuel to take them all, and since he's not a Robinson, he's to be sacrificed. But then, Smith springs another trap. Oh, wait a minute. I know how we can get all the Detronium we need. And Will asks, but how? Come with me. Hmm... This next scene is really wonderful. It's a dazzling performance by Dr. Smith, worthy of Houdini, because they walk into Smith's little campsite where the robot is standing guard, and Will is amazed at the sight because Smith's meager possessions have apparently been reproducing because he's got four shaving kits, several bedrolls, and a veritable truckload of family-sized cans of pork and beans. Who knew that the gourmet Smith was a fan of the magical fruit? Yeah, I'm glad to see that somebody had replenished all the food reserves after last week's ransacking by the Sand Mutant. I love those big giant cans. <laughs> you know, what yeah, a- it's, it's too bad the monster got the last ham, though. I didn't see any of those in the stockpile, mm. did you? No, I didn't see any of those, but it it's kind of confusing. I always thought they took freeze-dried food and tang on space missions, but I guess the Robinsons have a little bit better pantry. Yeah, they've got room for tape recorders and uh, <laughs> you know, also guitars and yes. lassos. And, right. uh, but there's only one robot. Oh, it's kind of interesting. If he could reproduce all those things, I wonder why he didn't get one more servant, but... Uh, Anyway, Will asks how, and Smith explains that something amazing happened. He had placed his shaving kit on a rock and turned away when he heard a strange sound. And I thought that really was a strange sound. It was very creepy sounding. Yeah, it sounded a little bit like a chortling. Chortling, you know, it's like a a laughter inside your throat, you know. Mm -hmm. Something strange. Yeah, it was really strange. And, And then he turned and he saw this plant devouring his kit. And of course, there's this big plant sitting right next to the rock. And <laughs> Oh, I didn't notice that. That's uh, a big giant plant. Yes. He wrestles the shaving kit out of the giant flower's mouth, and by chance, he looked in it, and he saw an identical kit, which he pulled out like a rabbit out of a hat. That was quite an interesting plant, didn't you think? 
Oh, yeah, it reminded me of uh, Audrey 2, that carnivorous plant for the Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> it looked a little hokey with the giant flower petals, but then again, the sound sells it. It's that, it does. That, that alien curdling sound. Very weird, spooky, and overall, it was a very cool effect. It was, it was. And Will's blown away with amazement, but still he doesn't understand how. And Smith gives him a little botany lesson. He says, you remember how plants reproduce, right? Through cellular mitosis. <laughs> so, okay. Oh, you know, you, and you know what? All that scientific mumbo jumbo, it, it actually sounds pretty, yeah, they do kind of, uh, they do sort of, that is kind of how, right. you know, it's funny how it works. It does. I mean, you know it's bologna, but it's like, it's not, it's just enough filler to make the bologna taste like right. real meat. Right. Well, these are alien plants, so I guess anything's possible. So we go along with it. Now, the thing is, Smith is laying the groundwork for his little grifter's trap that he wants to pull on Will. Golly! That's exactly what I said when I first witnessed this miracle. A miracle, my boy, that will ensure all of us, including myself, a safe return to Earth. What do you mean? It should be obvious that these wonderful plants can, in the twinkling of an eye, produce as much deuterium as we need. Let me show you. I don't know. Do you doubt your own eyes, my boy? Or is it that you, too, want to see me abandoned on this forsaken planet? Are you sure it'll work? Let me show you. Watch. <laughs> One, two, three. It's done. Here is the original. And here is the duplicate. Golly. You already said that, my boy. But how does it work? Have you forgotten your botany? Plants reproduced by cellular mitosis, cell division. The reproductive process of this remarkable species is simply non-discriminatory. It can duplicate anything placed within it. Wait till I show these to Dad. Not so fast, my over-anxious friend. You may take this canister back to your father and Major West and tell them of the miracles I have wrought. And tell them also that when I have their solemn promise that I will be allowed to accompany you back to Earth, I will then manufacture all the deuteronium they need. Until then, I will keep this canister. Well, okay. I'll be right back. Yes. After Will is gone, Smith opens the canister of deuteronium and greedily pours out some of those precious little pellets, running them through his fingers as if they were diamonds. And it's funny, as precious as those are, he's actually spilling them as he tries to pour them back into the can. And he sets that can down on the rock. And when he turns away, that large plant bends down and tries to eat the can, but instead it just knocks it onto the ground. Some of those little grains of fuel spill all over the ground and we hear that creepy plant noise again. And one of those smaller little alien flowers next to the spill fuel begins to quiver ominously. You know, the way these colonists treat radioactive material is just amazing. You know, Will actually collects uranium rocks. You know, <laughs> John steps into nuclear reactors to check radiation levels without any suit. And Smith runs radioactive pellets through his fingers with <laughs> no gloves at all. I know. You know? Even That's Madame cur Curry took more precautions than these guys, and, you know, she died of radiation poisoning before they even knew what it was. So mm. th things, the future does not bode very well for these guys, certainly not uh, their hair, or they're going to need lots of Rogaine. Let's just leave it at that. Yes, yes. So, well, we see Will race back into the drill 
campsite with a can of fuel, excited with the news that Dr. Smith has solved their problems and can make all the deuteronium they need. He tells him about the duplicating alien flower, but John seems dubious. It is Smith, after all, and he takes the can away from Will, and while trying to open it, the whole thing, the whole thing sort of breaks apart in his hand and it's kind of reminding me of those uh, renewable water bottles we have today that they claim are made from vegetable matter versus oil-based plastics i guess lost in space was green even before they were in color (laughs) yeah when are we gonna learn Uh, but i thought it was kind of cool because it breaks apart in his hand and inside of it it looked like it was like corn silk or spanish moss or something else and john doesn't act surprised at all he says why this is a plant dr smith has tricked you and he gave you a fake can, which means Smith has the real canister of fuel. Which he doesn't. I mean, I, I mean, I did take it to be that that was the original, but, you know, John makes a logical assumption at that point that he swapped it because the, the plant has basically eaten the, the radioactive material. We just didn't, don't know it at that time. Didn't you think that? No, because don't you remember Smith kept the original can because he opens it up and he pours the pellets through. He pulled a oh, switch. Okay, 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 a, okay. He okay. pulled a switcheroo on... Uh, okay, before you go into there, let me just ask you, though. Wouldn't the plant have also eaten the real radioactive material out of the original as well? I mean, he did have it in his mouth. I never thought about that, but you would think oh. so. But they, they, they clearly show you, and that was part of the reason why he made such a big show of saying, here's the original when he's giving him the fake, and here's the duplicate. But of course, he knows that the duplicate comes out first, and it's worthless, and he keeps the original. But Oh, but I didn't know that Smith knew that. I don't think that Smith did know that the uh, he was giving him one that w- was worthless. He knew. He definitely knew. How do that you know the- that? Well, because that's, that, that uh, all the other stuff that he made uh, came out fine, the uh, shaving kits and we never opened the shaving kit. Okay, so you're assuming that it didn't duplicate any of that stuff, right? That's what oh, I'm well, assuming. See, that that's not what I assumed. I assume that it duplicated everything except for the material that it actually eats. Well, there's no way to confirm it. I just took the fact that he made such a big show out of. And it's a trick, see? Now, Lane, he, you know yeah. what happens when you assume things. It makes an ass out of you and me. A S S U M E. No, uh, this is a this. I, I, and I mean, and John, it, it, John it even still says works either he, way. It works yeah. either way because I mean, if if he replaces the uh, shaving kits with real shaving kits, great. You know, if it makes more pork and beans, then great. But they do eat these pellets, as we're going to discover later on. And, and so it makes sense that they're not going to duplicate that because they need that to eat. Right. But here's my final thing why I think Smith knew he had given him a fake is because Don is going to say later, because Will's going to ask him, why did he trick me? And he goes, because he knows we need that last canister of fuel to get back. Okay, but, yeah, I agree that that would give you a logical basis to assume so, that. But So he's got mind. the upper hand but, but, because yes, he's got the... I get all that, but keep this in mind. He didn't have one extra shaving kit. He had four or five extra shaving kits, and he didn't have one or two extra pork and beans. He had a whole bunch of pork and beans. If this thing was replacing them with things that were just filled with corn uh, fiber, don't you think he would have figured that out the moment he opened the very first shaving kit? And why would he keep duplicating it? I don't know. Maybe just to sell the... The fact that, that you know, he's, I, I don't know. And maybe maybe it does duplicate everything but deuterium, but I'm pretty sure he had to know that he was giving Will a fake because otherwise his extra can is no leverage over the, the Robinsons. If they've yeah, got- but I, I, I thought at that time he was making a genuine offer to the Robinsons. Hey, I can duplicate this stuff. I can now fly back with you. I didn't know at this point this was all a conspiracy. I I know that that's how Smith thinks and everything. But if he thought that he could duplicate the stuff simply by putting it through the plant, 
why not go with the you know the simple offer, which is, hey, guess what? I got all the food you can possibly want. Yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> uh huh. I thought that was why he made such because otherwise, why would he make such a, an effort of emphasizing here's the original and here's the duplicate? He could say here's one can, here's two can. But anyway, let's let's don't get yeah. bogged down into this sure, any sure. further. Uh, but we'll. Uh, it's only twelve thirty a.m., folks. This is why we're going on and on about this. <laughs> we're and we're only fifty five <laughs> minutes into it. We're not even halfway through with the the yeah. episode yet. So okay, so. Just then, we see that Smith has returned to his spy perch up in the rocks overlooking the drill site. Will's upset at having been fooled and asks, why did he trick me? And Don has the answer. He also knows that Smith is back snooping on them. He says that Smith knows they can't blast off the planet without that last can of fuel, and he wants to blackmail them into taking him as well. And this brings a satisfied smile to Smith's face, but... Oh, don't say blackmail. That's such a dirty word. <laughs> mm. I prefer the term encourage with force. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don's ready to get the last laugh on Smith. He announces loudly again, so Smith won't miss it, that they don't need his can. That's because while Will was gone, they got one last batch out of that dried up well, and they have plenty of fuel anyway. And Will's now on Team Don. He says, I'm glad, and he shouldn't have tricked me. John John says, let's get that fuel safely back to the ship. And Will delivers the mortal blow to Smith's psyche when he leaves, saying, and leave Dr. Smith out here, (laughs) which causes Smith to nearly have a coronary, like clutches his heart. (laughs) Yeah. But remember, he has to have a heart in order to have a coordinator, so fortunately, he's quite safe. Mm. As the act draws to a close, the men are returning to the Jupiter with that fuel when Dr. Smith catches up to them to parlay an offer. Professor Robinson, uh, may I have a moment? There's something I should like to discuss with you. All right, what is it? Well, it's in the nature of a, of a compromise, let us say. Uh, Dr. Smith, would you please come to the point? I've come prepared to strike a bargain. A bargain? Well, that's very decent of you, but... Uh... Why should I bargain with you? And over what? Over deuteronium. Those precious little grains of fuel that will take us away from this beleaguered planet. Well, we don't need your deuteronium. I'm aware of that. But surely an extra can will guarantee a safe departure. Yes, I suppose it might. Good. Now we come to the bargain part. Which is? Will the extra can of deuteronium also guarantee that I will be included in the ship's company when you depart? Ah, I thought it would be that. The answer, Dr. Smith, is that we'll take you along if it's humanly possible. Now, considering your recent behavior, I'd say that's more than fair. Oh, you're so right. And I shall hasten and get the can of deuteronium still in my possession and deliver it to you forthwith. You do that. And then I shall rest my feet in your honest and capable hands. Uh, well, Smith's relieved, and he hurries back to camp to gather up his belongings, only to discover that his canister is on the ground, emptied of all those precious little pellets of deuteronium. And what's more, that little flower we saw earlier has grown enormously. In fact, many of the alien plants are now monster-sized. And Smith looks around at those larger-than-life daisies, and then at the empty can in his hand. And before we go to commercial, the realization hits him. Oh, good heavens, they eat deuteronium! <laughs> oh. We're 
returning back to from the break to start Act 2, a sheepish Dr. Smith returns to the camp empty-handed and dejected-looking. As he approaches, the rest of our galactic castaways are busy packing up their belongings for the imminent departure. Maureen notices Smith and announces his arrival to John, who comes out of the ship to speak with him. John has that same look my father used to give me when it was time for me to hand over my report cards. Ooh, boy. What about the can of deuteronium? And then Smith answers with his own version of the dog ate my homework, but instead it was the plants ate my deuteronium. That, that kind of made me chuckle because it sounds ridiculous. But Smith actually seems sincere here, and he's worried he's lost his spot on that last flight out of town. And John acts unfazed. He doesn't even offer <laughs> Smith much solace. He's he's kind of starting to play with <laughs> Dr. Smith. Yeah. yeah. Oh, how unfortunate, Dr. Smith. <laughs> yeah, and he's got a big smile on his face when he says this, too. He does. And Smith says, does this mean he's to be left behind? And John says, well... A bargain is a bargain, and uh, Smith kind of feigns acceptance of his fate, but then he reminds John that he was not a volunteer for the mission, and he adds one more little appeal to Mercy, that if, if justice is to prevail, he should be the first name on the departure manifest, to which John says, I shall bear that in mind, Dr. Smith. John returns inside the ship while Don, Judy, and the kids come outside, and Smith sadly sits down on that rock, and this next scene... This next one really made me laugh because Dr. Smith walks across and he sits down and he's looking miserable and Judy's kind of lingering by the hatch, but Don, Will, and Penny, and Penny's got the bloop in her arms, they walk over to Dr. Smith and perhaps for the last time and Will says, it's too bad he couldn't find the fuel, but he shouldn't have tricked him. I didn't just try, I succeeded. Let's not forget that. Penny asks uh, Dr. Smith if he's going to have to stay and he replies... That question is still before the High Tribunal. Which Will says means Dad hasn't made up his mind yet. And then Penny asks Smith to tend her garden if he stays, to which he spitefully replies, Your garden will wither and die. I can assure you that. (laughs) (laughs) What do you know? For once, Smith is telling the truth, right? Exactly, yeah. And Bill Moomy was really smiling at that point. (laughs) Then poor little Debbie made the mistake of petting Dr. Smith on the shoulder, which earned her yet another little love tap on her hand. And I mean, a real mean scowl from Dr. Smith. I think we need to call that SPCA you were talking about last episode. Another little interesting point on the cast commentary. Marta asked if Debbie had had her teeth removed by this episode, and Bill Moomy said, no, it was sometime later. So I guess she still had... Oh, wow. So they, like, measure their time on the series based on whether the (laughs) monkey still had his teeth or not. I guess BC was for Bisful Chimp, and AD was after Dentist or something. Uh, then Don gets a chance to really pour it on. He puts a sympathetic hand on Smith's shoulder and starts pouring salt in the wound, saying, You know, it's really a shame, Dr. Smith, but uh, things don't look too good for you at all. The condition you find most cheering? Not at all. As a matter of fact, when I compute the fuel-to-weight ratio, which we already know is going to be very critical, I'll do my best to include us all. I'm deeply touched. Does that mean I can take the bloop? How can you even think of taking that beast when I may have to remain? I think the bloop should go. So do I. Well, we don't have a capsule for the bloop, so uh, that's out of the question. I'll build her a capsule. That's a deal. You build a capsule for the bloop and she goes. Of course, that cuts the available weight still further. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Smith, but things don't look very good for you at all. Bloop indeed. 
What was that German word for taking delight in other people's misery? Schadenfreude. Yeah, Schadenfreude. <laughs> yes, there was plenty of Schadenfreude on the set there. So Next, night has fallen and we cut back to Smith's camp where the fire is dying. Smith berates the robot for not tending it properly, but he retorts, oxidation ends when all fuel is carbonized, to which Smith says, well, you could have gathered more wood. And this is funny once again, because the robot says, he, I was just following orders. He was told to tend the fire and he did. He never left it, even to gather more wood. And Smith is annoyed. He says... Yeah, do you have to be so literal? Yes, he's a robot. We've seen this before. Don't, didn't you learn your lesson by now, Dr. Smith? Yeah, it's great hearing Smith tell the robot how stupid he is for not gathering more wood. Well, we all know it was Smith who could have gathered more wood, too. So, after all, he's the warm-blooded creature. It's not like the robot needs the the fire. Smith is. Smith needs it, but he's not going to gather it, uh, so... Next, with Act 2 drawing to an end, we go to a scene that kind of left me baffled. And it, it's a very visually interesting scene, and it's full of creepiness because it's, it's night again. And Judy is out on a moonlit stroll through that jungle of large alien cyclamen plants. And we can hear the gentle sound of those plants. It uh, reminded me of that same frog pond sound that the uh, Hapgood monster spores made. She seems hypnotized by the sight and sounds of those large monstrous plants. But they are kind of beautiful, I, I suppose. And she passes them and petals open up and the music is starting to signal that these flowers may be pretty but they're probably dangerous and then for some reason we see that dr smith is stalking judy i i didn't get this at all how did he know she was there and and what's he doing uh, we don't get any answers on that for some reason he doesn't say anything though he's just observing her so it's lots of creepiness here more alarm bells are ringing in my head suddenly another one of those giant flowers opens up there's a strange sound coming from it that's calling Judy, and she turns in a trance-like state and slowly approaches it. Then, for some inexplicable reason, she decides to climb into one of those <laughs> alien flowers, and then she gracefully, almost ballerina-like, lays down in a curled-up fashion inside the open flower. I have to say I was very impressed with how smoothly Marta Kristen pulled that move off. She seemed almost to deflate down into the center of that plant like a sleeping beauty and she she is like a sleeping beauty because she closes her eyes and i wonder did did you find it odd that she was out there walking around among the alien plants uh, did you think it was like something she was doing of her own free will or was she being like summoned by them what was the impression you got well at first it looked like she was just admiring them you know which seemed kind of weird because they were so big and in my mind they were sort of threatening with this huge audrey-like giant pods and stuff but yeah. as she got to the point where she was walking into and laying down it became pretty obvious that she was in some sort of trance and lost in space uses these trances a lot to get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do we're, we're right gonna see that in a couple episodes from now with that keeper episode right and yeah uh, so you know that that's the only logical explanation for that yeah. I was curious also why she was even out there to begin with. And in the book, they said there was actually an additional scene film that showed Judy going to Dr. Smith's camp because she felt sorry for him. And she wanted to tell him that John intended to take Smith along with them when they blast off. But the episode was running long, so that bit was trimmed. So we didn't really get the explanation for why she was out there to begin with. Wow. That, that's pretty interesting because it means that Smith is going to exploit her dangerous situation here that she put herself in in order to help him basically you know correct which correct. just shows how self-centered he is but not right. that we need more evidence of that but you know 
Yeah. So as we go to commercial break, Dr. Smith is still observing from the shadows and the petals of that plant that Judy laid down in, they're slowly starting to close around sleeping Judy and those frog-like alien flower sounds grow louder and louder and as it closes up completely, we're left to wonder, will we ever see Judy alive again? A curious thing about the situation is why did it pick Judy? You know, Smith's campsite was right there. Why not hypnotize him instead? Does it depend on women loving big flowers to get them to lay down inside them? I mean, why didn't it just, you know, get Smith? After all, Smith put his arm inside one of them. He would have thought that that would have been the first choice. But maybe they got a taste of him and decided, you know, (laughs) he was a little too sour or something. Well, one Dr. Smith is enough, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that would be scary, wouldn't it? When we return to start act two, we see Smith emerge from the night shadows and he cautiously inches through the field of giant flowers to the one which has Judy in its spell. He peers over the edge of one of those petals and we see Sleeping Beauty Robinson. By the way, what what did you think about the look of those big giant flowers? Feed me, Seymour. <laughs> Feed me. No, but seriously, we know it's family hour, so they had to make them kind of family friendly, you know. Yeah. And more, it was more beautiful and Alice in Wonderland type flowers and thorn-covered Venus flytraps or anything like that. But that, that sinister sound makes up for the otherwise milk-toast appearance, I thought. Yeah, yeah. So, And it's also one of those things like, you know, looks can be deceiving. What looks like a beautiful thing can actually be dangerous, I suppose. But Smith does this little half turn of his face towards the camera, and then another one of those great sly smiles come across his lips and wonder what he's thinking. Oh, yeah. Well... We don't have to wait long because he hightails it out of that Garden of Eden back to his camp and he lets his servant companion, the robot, know that things are looking up and his problem has been solved. By tomorrow, he'll be winging his way back to Earth. And of course, the robot's confused because he says nothing has changed. But Smith says, perhaps, but... The balance of power has changed. Yeah, and the robot is, of course, like, what? That does not compute. And the smiling Smith says... You wouldn't understand. It involves comprehension of horticulture and the wisdom of knowing when to keep one's mouth shut. Mm, the robot doubles down. He says, it still does not compute. But as a chuckling Dr. Smith is thinking, he tucks himself in for the night. He even says to himself, <laughs> I can hardly wait for morning. I found myself saying, Smith, will you ever learn? Because I'm just thinking, you know, as soon as the family discovers Judy's missing, one... They're going to go look for her, right? I mean, at least I would think they would until they find her. And if they don't find her, they're going to think that Smith had something to do with her disappearance. Smith just can't help himself, can he? The simple answer is not going to be the way he goes. So It's not just about me getting back to Earth, my dear boy. It's about how I do it. I can assure you Dr. Zachary Smith does not rely on the generosity or sympathy of others. No. <laughs> I depend on my clever machinations to force them to do as I wish. And you're about to see such a masterpiece unfold. So don't you dare touch that dial. Mm, yeah, well, you're right. Sure enough, next morning, Dr. Smith strolls in the camp. He's all sunshine and smiles. Marine is setting the breakfast table. While John is, for some reason, outside running the electric razor over his beard, Smith greets them with a warm good morning and asks disingenuously, How is our dear little space mother this glorious morning? 
that's too obvious even for Marine. She asks him in a nice but slightly skeptical way what he wants. And, of course, he avoids answering her questions by asking another question. Where's the rest of our happy little group? Don't tell me we have some stair-beds in our midst. Then more of the crew start to pile out of the ship, and Dr. Smith makes some syrupy comment about each one until he observes, "Now, now where is Miss Judy? And his act is wearing thin on John, who tells him to get to the point or leave. And Don is suspicious about all this talk about Judy, but Maureen says she's probably still in bed. When Penny walks out, Smith asks her to go in and wake her. Oh, you know, the best part about all this is the fact that he is just so effervescent and jovial. And we all know that, you know, Judy is potentially in some great peril. So this totally doesn't bother him at all. It's almost like he feeds on it. That's his detronium. Right, right. But then Penny and Will run out to say Judy's missing and the mood changes instantly. And Don smells a rat once more named Smith. But John restrains him and asks Smith what he knows. And... Smith says, Judy's gone and won't be back. No harm's come to her, mind you, but Smith is starting to insert his control. He's also quick to state he had nothing to do with her disappearance, but he doesn't seem too unhappy about it. Your daughter is safe. No harm has come to her. Mind you, I had nothing to do with her disappearance, but I do know where she is. Well, then why won't you tell us? It grieves me deeply, dear lady, to see you so upset. But I simply cannot tell you where she is just yet. What does that mean? It means that your plan to leave this desolate cinder without me is going to change. Now then, as I see it, there are two alternatives, and the choice is yours. Number one, we leave for Earth as planned, with me taking Judy's place on the ship. Well, now, you know we can't do that. I thought not. Uh, So you choose the other alternative. Exactly what is the other alternative? Major West pilots me back to Earth. And your charming little family can stay here bathed in togetherness. When I am safely away, I will radio where Judy is. When I arrive on Earth, my first solemn duty will be to organize a rescue mission to come back for the rest of you. You'll never get away with this, Smith. I see no need for a tiresome discussion. My decision is made. Now then, dear lady, breakfast. There is so much to do if Major West and I are to leave on schedule. As the next scene starts, we see Will, Penny, and even the Bloop are unloading their gear off the ship and loading Smith's luggage onto the Jupiter 2. And then inside the ship, we see John and Don are going through their pre-launch checks. And Don is steamed as ever. He doesn't want to give in to Smith's blackmail. But John says they can't leave without Judy. And then the last straw comes when Smith pops in to chide the men for gold-bricking about... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you talk about projection. This guy's oh, unbelievable. It's so rich. Smith is loving every second of this. He's as happy as a clam, completely unfazed by their misery and fear that, you know, their daughter could be in extreme danger. He's yeah. just loving it. And that does it. Don chases after Smith, saying, there's been a change of plans, and he puts him in a headlock until Smith agrees to talk. But when Major West releases him, instead of giving up Judy's location, Smith starts up with the pity party act again. My heart, my dear heart, I've had a seizure, I know it. (laughs) And that launches Don over the edge, and he grabs Smith by the collar and shouts at him, Smith, you gotta tell me where Judy is. That does it. He says, all right, all right, I'll tell you. And at that moment, John arrives just in the nick of time to pull Don off of Smith, and then... Smith points behind them and miraculously there 
there's Judy walking back into camp, safe as can be, and everyone's happy to see her. She's alive and well. But when they ask her where she's been and how she is, her answers seem really stilted and strange, and she doesn't really look happy to see anyone else either. She seems very emotionless. Maureen's overjoyed, and she says it doesn't matter where she's been. All that matters is that she's back and safe. Then there's a little cut to Smith during the happy reunion. He's heading back towards the ship, and Major West suddenly remembers that it was Smith who started this whole mess, and he catches up with the good doctor and threatens him once more. But Smith's again, ever ready with a quick response. Try to remember that the superior man deplores violence, Major. (laughs) You don't really think I would have gone through with my plan? Why, I was merely joshing. Mm. Which, of course, is exactly what they were doing to him. So, you know, they set him Mm. up for that. They really did. You can tell Don wants to wring his neck, but it seems that Smith has slipped out of the fire once more. In fact, it's funny. I guess all is forgiven because Maureen invites Smith to stay for a celebration dinner. Oh, boy. When dinner is served, the salad course, of course, doesn't seem to agree with Judy, even though Mom tells her it's her favorite. Mixed little greens and little hearts of cyclamen. Yummy, yummy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this this makes Judy snap at Marine. I don't want any salad, Mother. Oh. I hate you, vegetarians. I hate you. <laughs> Uh, just give me a peanut butter and deuteronium sandwich and I'll be fine. So John corrects her for being disrespectful because it does seem out of character for Judy, but she quickly regains her composure and says she's just not very hungry. She glances at the others wolfing down their salad and has the look of someone watching a bear eat their best friend. Uh, as the scene is going on, we can see that Smith is somewhat suspiciously watching Judy because, of course... He knows that she fell asleep inside that alien flower, but I don't think he's put it all together yet. Anyone who doesn't eat little green onions is not to be trusted. (laughs) Judy says she's tired and decides to retire to bed. And then when Don quickly gets up and offers to walk her in, she again sort of recoils in disgust and she declines his help, but catches herself quickly again and says, it's all right, it's all right, don't bother yourself, Don. And everyone's kind of looking around. It's it's weird. They're a little bit concerned about her behavior, but they probably are just chalking it up to exhaustion. Don does seem disturbed, though. I'll say, before he had that beautiful blonde to himself, but now it looks like he'll have to endure his loneliness single-handedly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. (laughs) Later that night, we see Smith slip out of the ship and head back out into the flower beds, digging up one of the smaller specimens of those alien monster plants, and he starts talking to himself, letting us in on his scheme. Just one of these little marvels should be enough to make me a rich man back on Earth. Yeah, he's going to take one of these plants back to Earth, you know, (laughs) introduce an invasive alien species. That makes a lot of sense. But that's the old Zachary we know and love. But his digging is interrupted by that strange frog frog pond sound again, and that usually tells us those monster plants are up to no good. So he drops his little spade and decides to investigate. To his surprise, he spies sweet, innocent Judy back wandering through those giant plants. And it's kind of a confusing sight because she's smiling lovingly at the flowers. She doesn't seem to be in a trance like the last time, but it's almost as if she's been reunited with old friends. And what's even more disturbing is she's got a slew of those precious canisters of atomic fuel slung under her arms. This spells trouble because Smith immediately blurts out, Oh, good heavens, she's one of them. Ah! 
Yeah, he's finally figured it out. This line was another example of how careful CBS was with Lost in Space. Originally in the script, it was Good Lord, but I guess they deemed that was possibly offensive. Um, yeah, well, you got to remember that's back in the days that when you told somebody Merry Christmas, they would thank you instead of trying to sue you. <laughs> <laughs> Times they are changing. Oh, boy, indeed. Plant Judy C. Smith. Here we really get a chance to see Marta Kristen shine because during this whole scene, she comes across as very menacing and dangerous, not like the Judy we know and love. And Smith realizes that he's in trouble. He tries to escape with a few compliments about how lovely the plants are, but she won't let him go. Don't let me disturb you. I'll just toddle on my way back. Wait, you said I am one of them. Well, I did see you go in there the other evening, and they are duplicating plants. But I'm probably wrong. No. They certainly are handsome plants, I'll say that. I bring them deuteronium. Oh, that looks like just about all there is. And you were about to give it to your flowering chums, right? I wonder if that's such a good idea. You see, my dear, if you give away all the deuteronium, the Robinsons will wonder where it went. And I shall be forced to tell them. And you wouldn't get any more, would you? Oh, wait a minute, wait. Let me explain. If you were to give me just enough for Major West and I to take off in the spaceship, we would leave the Robinsons behind. How would that help us? Think, my dear, think. They would be here to make all the new deuteronium you want. You would be giving away just a little bit now, but look at it as an investment in the future. True enough. All right. It is agreed. As the act comes to an end before we go to break, Smith scampers off with his two cans of fuel and leaves Pod Judy to feed the monster plants, which she does with joy. Clearly, uh, Smith's schizoid roulette wheel has landed on evil genius this week. There's no clueless clown in this episode. <laughs> this is the minister of sinister at the top of his game. He really is, man. When we return from commercial to start the final act, we open on Will Robinson's astonished face in close-up. He yells for his parents to come quickly, and no wonder, because the entire main viewport of the ship is completely overgrown with monster flowers. And it's a pretty amazing sight, for sure. I guess uh, that deuteronium really is a miracle food for plants. And John emerges from the lower deck, followed quickly by some of the others, and they're all shocked by the unbelievable sight to behold. It's an infestation of giant cyclamen. Now, Kurt, this is a setup question, because you and I both grew up in the South. Did this scene stir any plant-related memories to you at all? Oh, yeah. Well, you're thinking kudzu because that stuff is everywhere in the South and grows like crazy. But I actually know of a vine that's even worse. It's called wisteria. And it not only grows, but it's as tough as durasteel, and you can't break it with your bare hands, not even the thin vines. It'll wrap itself around a tree and squeeze it and make the bark break and grow around the vine. It'll also send runners underneath the ground, and you won't realize it's spreading all around the yard until it's everywhere and it's too late to control it. It's straight out of Lost in Space, and I'm certain it's probably what inspired this episode. Well, that and another science fiction for the 1950s, which I'm sure nobody can think of. Mm, no, I'm sure they can't. So is wisteria common down in your neck of the woods? Yeah, it's very common in Florida. I, I won't say that it's 
everywhere in the wild, but I think it's been a recent plant that people have brought in the last 50 years because once you start it, it's almost impossible to get rid of it. And it's got this beautiful purple flower that's got a, a wonderful smell to it, too. It's almost hypnotic. It's... It's it's just like this in this episode. I mean, it's got everything but the pods that grow into people. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, it does. I, I, could, I remember fighting this stuff in my yard. I mean, literally getting wrapped up in it, and I, I felt like it was alive. It was just—it's almost impossible to to cut all those things. It's just incredible. Well, I didn't have any experience with wisteria, but I still have nightmares about trying to clear kudzu out of our property because that stuff was really invasive. So. Anyway, monster plants, right? In any event, Don makes a scary comment that whatever could grow that rapidly, if not stopped, will eventually snuff out all other life on the planet. Sheesh. Luckily, he says the chariot is parked right outside the ship. They can reach it, break out their most powerful weapon, the neutron gun. First time we've heard. <laughs> is that is that similar to the neutron bomb, the one that can kill everyone but leave all the buildings and spaceships unharmed? <laughs> I don't know, but it's so powerful it needs to be plugged into an outlet. <laughs> and yeah, so that was cool. I like that. Yeah, yeah. They're going to try to destroy those nasty weeds with that neutron gun, and John tells Marine and the kids to stay inside for safety. I, th- I think I wouldn't have to be told that. <laughs> yeah. you know? So Don and John venture into that cyclamen jungle to do battle with the plants, and they get in the chariot, and Don opens the upper hatch and starts firing away, and that only seems to wake up the frog pond sounds again. The, those plants are just too tough even for the neutron gun to destroy. Did you notice how much of that shooting is inferred with the sound and not actually shown? Like there's, oh. a, lot, there's a lot of close-ups and you see Don aiming the weapon, but the, the tip of the weapon is off camera and mm-hmm. you hear the blast. And, and then you maybe you, you see a, uh, a long shot and you can see Don. You can see Don and you can see his rifle, but you can't see what he's shooting at because a rock is in the way. You know, they're, <laughs> they're clearly saving money on the animation bits here. But it works because you hear the sound. So right. he, they do that a lot here. Yeah, you can see, you can hear the sound and you can hear the frogs reacting. To yeah, it. you <laughs> get like about, you know, three or four shots of the laser blast, which is enough. But I mean, right. you hear it three times as often and don't don't see it. Well, I guess those animations were expensive, so yeah, everyone's got to save it the budget. They were always over budget anyway, so. Back inside the ship, Judy appears. Well, at least it's plant Judy. We know that now, and she's immediately upset that the men are trying to destroy her family. Before Maureen can stop her, she, she rushes outside and enters the chariot and uh, tries to unplug the power cord from Don's neutron rifle. John is confused by her actions, and he struggles to stop her. I guess he's thinking she's hysterical or something. In, in any event, he grabs her by the forearm and when he does her sleeve rips a little and we see what look like bruises on her skin where he's grabbed her and i think this is one of those rare instances where the black and white photography didn't actually tell the whole story because when john sees those bruises he looks at judy and she gives kind of a look of being found out and there's also an instant expression of recognition both on john and don's face as well and as if oh they instantly understand what's going on here. And in the script, it's made clear that those bruises were supposed to be like chlorophyll green colored instead of black and blue. And that was supposed to give away the fact that this wasn't the real Judy, but a plant copy of her. I, I that, that seemed weak to me. I mean, I, it's, I, I would have had it where, you know, that she gets accidentally cut and she's bleeding. And then, you know, John says something like, Judy, stop, you're bleeding. Your, your blood is green or something like that and have him actually say it because I saw that scene several times. I'm going, what gives? So she's got some bruises on her, on her arm. Big deal. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was confused by it as well. But interestingly enough, the cast on the commentary was a little bit confused as well. And Mike Clark had to actually explain that bit to them. So again, I think that was a little bit of a weak point. So yeah, but again, this episode is getting so intense and so much fun. You know, you just completely gloss over it. That That is not a big stumbling part for this thing. I mean, this is a, a very exciting part of this episode. It's a dramatic scene, and it's well shot, and Marta Kristen's doing a great job of the acting here. So next we cut back inside the ship, and Pod Judy is now being given the third degree by John, Maureen, and Don, while Smith is looking on from behind, and she's definitely a hostile witness. She admits to them that she's a plant duplicate, but reveals only that the real Judy is safe. And uh, Maureen even asks if she'll give Judy back, and she smiles and says no. Uh, That little, maybe it's time to take out some salad and start eating in front of her, you know, that might loosen her tongue. Forget the waterboarding, just take out the cutting board and dice some carrots or something, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Then she offers them an invasion of the body snatchers deal. Immortality is a pod person in exchange for more deuteronium. Don tells her they only have a few cans, to which she says, well, you have none because she's already fed their supply to the plants, which explains their rapid growth. But of course, Dr. Smith promised, you can make me more, so don't worry, be happy. She has already made a terrible mistake. She believed Dr. Smith. Right. You have to learn that lesson the hard way, and John does spoil the fun for her by telling her they can't make any more deuteronium because their ore source is dried up, which means we're all stuck on this obnoxious planet for the rest of the season. <laughs> that little tidbit of news sends Plant Judy into a rage, and she drops the dime on Dr. Smith. She's not happy, and Dr. Smith recoils in fear, but she's then restrained by the others, so she can't really attack him. And now the others know that Smith knew all along that this was a fake Judy and that he was happy to sell real Judy out in exchange for his trip back to Earth. And John is just fit to be tied at this point. But Smith again weasels out of it and starts playing the victim yet again. Let's not lose control. I did what I had to do. You were going to leave me here. Well, he he sort of goes on to say that no harm has come to Judy where she is, which again sends Don into a rage. And Smith suddenly finds himself once more in a headlock, and he fesses up that he happened to see her near the plants the other evening. And then he lies yet again. He says, well, he wasn't really positive she hadn't gone home. But of course, we saw him look at her passed out inside that giant flower, and John's not buying it anymore. He demands that Smith lead them to her, and so it's settled. But Smith reminds them they've still got an issue, since the lasers aren't effective what to do about all that kudzu and wisteria out there. Don suggests burning it, but John says, no, that's no good. The fire might get to Judy. And then Professor Know-It-All says, what about freezing? Don says, "Mm, same problem. They'd likely freeze Judy to death. Of course, boy genius Will has the answer. He just happened to be doing some experiments on those cyclamen the other week and discovered they die at 44 degrees. So Judy will be okay. John seems a little bit dubious, and then he gets really serious. He says, are you absolutely Absolutely sure it's 44 degrees, Will. Your sister's life may hang in the balance. No pressure here. It was definitely 44 degrees. Although I'm not sure if that was Fahrenheit or centigrade, but damn those global (laughs) activists and their metric system agenda. So they're going to freeze the plants and they break out the bug sprayers. I mean, the radiation decontaminators. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I got that all wrong. These are the portable freezing units. The bee smokers. Yeah. (laughs) John, Don, and Smith proceed to freeze dry those alien plants. And the work appears to be going quickly with the giant plants falling left and right as they spray all that freezing 
fog around. Inside the ship, Maureen, the kids, and the pod Judy are left behind, and we only see a short clip of Judy's duplicate seeming to be in distress for just a few minutes. And then we cut back to the men who find the real Judy who's safely inside the giant flower, still asleep, but apparently alive. And as we go to commercial break, John picks up Judy and tries to revive her. And we're left again to wonder, will she be all right? Monster plants ruining your summer? At Zach's Weed Be Gone, we have the solution. You never invited these stubborn pests to your campsite, so draw the line. One spray of Zach's Weed Be Gone exterminates not only the people duplicating blooms, but penetrates right down to their mutating roots. Our patented 44-degree chilled formula keeps these deuteronium-eating rascals at bay for up to 12 solar months. Ordinary herbicides can't compare to the alien cyclamen-killing power of Zach's Weed Be Gone. Because campsites should be for cooking out and kicking back. Zach's Weed Be Gone. Draw the line on monster plants today and enjoy the rest of your summer. When we return from commercial, John is still holding Judy as she regains consciousness. She's cold, but she's alive, and Dr. Smith is ready with a space blanket. Everyone's relieved that she's okay, especially Don. And they pull her out of that giant flower and presumably back to the ship, which is the last scene of this story and leaves us with an unanswered question. Kurt, what happened to the duplicate Judy? Uh, They probably buried her next to last week's dog. (laughs) 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 Just look for the dogwood. Dogwood. Uh, well, there is an answer to this one again. I hate to, I'm starting to sound like Mr. Know It All, but I just want to point this out because Cushman in the book shed some light on the subject. He says, The script as it was originally written by Woodfield and Balter, we're supposed to see a scene of Plant Judy withering and dying along with the rest of the monster plants. And it was described in a gruesome fashion. And it was supposed to happen right in front of Maureen, Will, and Penny. Oh, man, that would have been so cool. I, yeah. That would have been like worthy of outer limits if only they had done that. Yeah. Well, Irwin Allen was pretty much sure that CBS was going to be very sensitive about this plot point. And there are memos from Irwin Allen to the script editor, Tony Wilson, mentioning that this needed to be changed or eliminated as soon as he read the original drafts. And changes were eventually made that showed the pod Judy running out of the ship, reaching the edge of the camp and then sinking to the ground and just sort of lying still. And Penny was supposed to be upset by that and turn away into her mother's arms. And Maureen was going to say, "Uh, I know, darling, but it's all right. I think this means that daddy's found our real Judy. It might have also been cool if she ran out into one of those sand pits, you know, and just slowly went into the sand or something like that and disappeared beneath the dirt, you know, because, I mean, she's a plant Judy, so it would work out. But I would have loved best the withering thing. That would have been great. Yeah. Well, CBS bought off on this version of Duplicate Judy's Demise, but it doesn't even appear in the episode. Why? Cushman says it came down to a matter of conflicting schedules, adding Bill Mooney and Angela Cartwright to the scenes for Plant Judy's interrogation and also the scenes of her dying, even if they were done tastefully, would have meant pulling them out of studio classroom sessions for additional hours and there just wasn't enough time. So instead, we're never shown what happens to Plant Judy. We just 
just have to infer or imagine what became of her. And uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Apparently, there were very strict rules on how much time these child actors had to be in class during a day. And class sessions had to be done in 20-minute increments. And Bill Moomey's talked about this in several interviews I've read. He says it was very difficult to be you know, on the set, and then they'd break to set up lighting or something. And he'd be shuttled off to a classroom trailer for 20 minutes of geometry and then run back to the set to shoot more Lost in Space. Oh, man, I wish I had been a child actor. I mean, that that's the type of school I could tolerate, 20-minute increments. That would be about the most, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it, it also makes you realize, uh, how did he do it? Because, you know, Will was in a lot of scenes. Him and Smith and the robot were, you know, 80 to 90% of a lot of these Lost in Space episodes. So, you know, they really must have gone double overtime. But I think I heard uh, Will also say that, or people describe Will as having a photographic memory and that he could, he and Smith would do those scenes in just one take. So oh, yeah. that's pretty much the only way they were able to do it, I think. Yeah, yeah. I've heard the same thing. So that's pretty amazing. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, what did you think about Attack of the Monster Plants? Oh, it's another uh, top tier episode. If only they had used that original ending, it would have been even better. But, you know, again, CBS cut them off at the pass. I mean, I, mm. I, granted, Irwin did the self-censoring thing, you know, but it's regrettable because the other ending would have made this episode an atmospheric masterpiece. But deleting it did create some of those gaping holes. But at the same time, you know, you have to recognize that Irwin was right. I mean, if he if he had done it the way I would have done it, he wouldn't have gotten a second in their third season. He may not have even gotten the rest of this season. So right. uh, it, it reminds you that this series wasn't just a, uh, a product of its time. It was also a product of its time slot. This was family hour. And so they just couldn't do certain things like that. But other than that, uh, I thought this was a, a wonderful episode. I love seeing uh, Smith at such a uh, devious level and you know he really he's just flip-flopping back and forth between one situation and another and he keeps coming back up on top and stuff like that and he's a badass guy in this one i mean you can't mm. like him but at the same time you can just love the fact that you hate him yes he's admirably wicked isn't he <laughs> yeah i'm so. really glad you explained though about that ending because that that makes you realize that it wasn't a limitation of their imagination they really did have a great ending for this in store and you know it's just that that stipulation they had to work around yep yeah. Well, um, I'll cut to the chase, and I say this one is definitely in the top third category for me. I've watched this one multiple times, and not just because I find Marta Kristen so easy on the eyes, but I just thought this episode is uh, superior in just about every aspect, with the possible exception of the ending, as you said. Um, very dramatic story, had some a few nice action scenes, the dialogue was good, direction, camera work, all that. It's a Judy-centric episode, but all the characters really had their moments. Even uh, little Debbie got to say a few lines. One last thing they said in the cast commentary, or someone asked, was they thought that Erwin Allen was actually the voice of the bloop. Now, they didn't confirm it, but I thought that was a nice thought. Wow. I'll never hear that monkey the same way again. So, <laughs> so not only did Alfred Hitchcock slip cameos of himself in his own movies, but so did Erwin Allen. Only as a monkey? <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah, yeah, oh, cool. I like it. Thank you. 
before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. And again, we'll go into this in more detail next time. But this one starts off with Will, Penny, Debbie, and Dr. Smith trudging along a path, buckets in hand, on a mission to collect more rocks, of all things. And Smith has to stop for a rest. Suddenly, we hear Penny call out. She's found an enormous egg resting in the top of one of those abandoned Tauron matter transfer machines. Dr. Smith convinces Penny to retrieve it, and she carefully hands that egg to Smith, and he's practically worshipping it. With this hen fruit, I shall prepare a meal that will rival the culinary orgies of ancient Rome. (laughs) (laughs) So Smith runs off to start cooking. Meanwhile... Little Debbie has climbed on top of that alien device, and uh-oh, Penny quickly retrieves Debbie, but when she gets back down from the machine, turns out she's standing right on that little target pad for the MTU, and just a second later, one of those transfer beams of light comes right down on top of her, and she's trapped for a moment. When the beam flies back up into space, she and the bloop are both gone. And that's just the moment when the freeze frame comes in with that strange Western cowboy font to say, sorry, to be continued, not next week, but two weeks from tonight. Same channel, same time. Yeah, this is this is one of those uh, episodes where if you're watching on DVD, it's very, very hard not to skip ahead and see the beginning of that because you want to know what's going on with Benny. Well, it's. I thought it was cool that they said two weeks, so... Oh, yeah, that really caught my eye. I think, you know, what happened? Did JFK get shot or something, or what? Well, I'll save that for next... Yeah, I, I guess it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I would admit <laughs> that Irwin Allen was in on the assassination. <laughs> we'll do anything to get an extra week yes. of this show. We're going we're gonna to assassinate the president. All right. So we'll find out about why there's two-week delay next time. So, folks... That wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 15 of Lost in Space, Return from Outer Space. That's another fun one. Until then, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.